This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. An agreement that calls itself gender neutral in the peace arena is by definition discriminatory against women. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. We are doing something a little different today on the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. We are being joined by our first ever male guest. I am honored to welcome Ambassador John Steinberg to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast today. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. You've done it all. From serving as the director of the U.S. Department of State's Joint Policy Council, the White House Deputy Press Secretary, the National Security Council Senior Director for African Affairs, to serving as the U.S. Ambassador to Angola, among countless other roles. And your advice has been valued by so many. Over the years, you've advised the Women's Refugee Commission, the UN Development Fund for Women, UN Civil Society Advisory Group for Women, Peace and Security, and the Institute for Inclusive Security. So again, long story short, it's just an honor to have you here with us today and as our first man on the show. Thank well, I appreciate you. the opportunity and the honor of being able to address these issues, perhaps from a somewhat different perspective. How did you find yourself involved in the world of development and, and the overall world of national security and health security? Well, I suspect I was programmed as a child to work in the areas of gender and racial rights and justice. Both of my parents were involved in the civil rights and the feminist movements of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. My dad was president of the LA City uh, Human Relations Commission, which at the time was working to address the root causes of the Watts riots. My mom became president of the PTA, but effectively transformed it into an adv- advocacy group to support school desegregation in Los Angeles and wow. the empowerment of young women and girls of color in particular. As a high school student, I wrote an editorial for my high school newspaper on the underappreciated role of women in the civil rights movement. I idolized Fannie Lou Hamer and Diane Nash and Dorothy Height. And actually, for my high school graduation present, my parents got me a lifetime membership in the National Organization for Women, oh, which, which was great, although I really wanted a car. <laughs> and so you had that upbringing and that you, did you go straight into USAID from, from college? No, I actually went straight into the State Department. So that brings us to Angola and the the bitter war and the peace accords that followed that. There was a decision taken to exclude women, as I I understand, from the peace process. And I just love your your assessment. What was going on? Because you're ambassador at the time. What were your thoughts? What was the experience at at that time? 
1994, I was serving as Bill Clinton's advisor for, for Africa, and I supported a peace process that was designed to end two decades of civil war in Angola as the Cold War ended and the United States, Russia, and uh, Portugal all joined with the United Nations. That war had killed a half a million people and had left four million people homeless. And we uh, reached an accord in 1994, and I asked the president to allow me to go out to Angola as ambassador to try to implement that agreement. Yeah. And I remember doing a press conference just as I was leaving. And at the end, a journalist said, so how does this agreement impact women? Mm -hmm. And I was totally embarrassed because I had never thought about that question before. And I said, you know, with great gusto, this is a gender neutral agreement. There's not a single provision in this agreement that's, uh, that discriminates against women. And then I went out to Angola, and it took me about a month to realize how stupid that statement was. Mm-hmm. An agreement that calls itself gender neutral in the peace arena is by definition discriminatory against women and likely to fail. And let me cite some of the reasons for that. Yeah. First, the the agreement didn't require the participation of women in the uh, peace implementation body. And so typically we would have 40 men and no women sitting around a table. What that did was silence women's voices. It meant that issues like sexual violence and human trafficking and abuses by government and rebel security forces, girls' education, reproductive health, were all given short shrift if they were addressed at all. And these were some of the reasons for the instability in Angola that led to the civil war. So that's a a very interesting insight that when you're talking about the, the root causes and addressing these things, like actually building stability, you need to address root causes and you need a holistic perspective to do so and without women at the table it's just not raised absolutely and uh, similarly we started by granting 13 separate amnesties to the warring parties that forgave them for atrocities during the conflict and We even had one amnesty that went so far as to forgive the parties for anything they might do six months into the future. It was like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Wow! And and so given the prominence of sexual violence during the conflict, it was like we were allowing men with guns to forgive other men with guns for crimes committed against women. Mm -hmm. It also produced a cynicism regarding our efforts to restore the justice and security sector. And what it said to the women was that this isn't your peace process. This is the peace process for the men with the guns. The other thing we did wrong was that we did demobilization programs where all you had to do was hand in a weapon 
and you got a, a series of uh, support and entered a camp and got uh, retraining. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that there were thousands of women who were in conflict who were not given weapons. They served as cooks and bearers mm. and sex slaves. And so they were excluded from that whole demobilization process. And they were left outside these camps. And when they went to get firewood or water or use latrines, they were subjected to various acts of, of uh, gender-based violence. When we sent the men back to the villages that they had come from, we had forgotten, it, basically, that those men had been gone from those villages for five or ten or even twenty years. They had no role in that society. The communities had learned to live without them. And so the predictable result was frustration of these men that led to alcoholism, drug abuse, divorce, rape, even femicide. It was as if the end of the formal war ushered in a new era of violence against women and girls. And we even had programs where we were trying to get the refugees and internally displaced people back home. Again, there were four million of these people, and we wanted to get them home as quickly as possible to demonstrate that normality had returned. And so we went out and we cleared all the roads of the landmines that had been planted there, and we got people to return uh, and resettle. And then when they went back to their villages, The women were sent out to plant the fields and fetch water and collect firewood. And we had not cleared landmines from those areas. And so what we had was a rash of injuries and deaths from landmines that mostly affected women. And so we weren't stupid. Over time, we recognized the problems. Mm-hmm. We, we launched programs in reproductive health, and you, we assigned human rights officers and got involved in girls' education. But in all honesty, by then, the parties had basically come to view the peace process as serving only the interests of the warring parties And when the process started to falter in 1998, we went to women's organizations and said, put pressure on the men to remain committed to the process. And they looked at us like we were coming from the moon. They said, you excluded us from this process. You disempowered us. We have no role in this process. We can't influence them in one way or another. And the truth was, we went back to civil war. And the peace only came permanently when the leader of the rebel movement was killed in a military conflict uh, four years later. And that experience really drove me to understand the importance of, of engaging women in peace processes around the world. Because, you know, it's so easy to focus on the guns and the bombs and the military militias. And it's, I mean, I would say it's a, it's a complex set of things to, to evaluate, but the root causes 
those affect society as a whole. Absolutely. And being able to tackle those root causes requires participation from women in these communities. And even the process of trying to implement one of these agreements depends upon the eyes, the ears, and the conscience of women. For example, you know, when we did our demobilization programs, we asked the men, you know, are these programs successful? We asked the the mayors of cities, et cetera. We didn't ask women who were having to live with the violence and the frustration that these men had. When we were doing our programs for security reform, we asked the generals and the police commissioners if the program were working. We didn't ask the women who were frightened by the new security forces and would no sooner go to them with a complaint against the man than they would, uh, you know, walk across a river. When we wanted to know where the next ceasefire violation was, we asked the men with the guns. They weren't going to tell us. What we should have done is ask the women in the marketplace who have to keep their ears to the ground to know when they're going to have to leave their homes because someone's attacking their village. And so in a very practical sense, Even the ability to implement one of these agreements is dependent upon the ground truth that that only women bring to the process. Well, one of the things that I think we've encountered, and particularly in the the post-September 11th wars, is almost a genuflection to our local partners and the gender realities that they experience. And basically, you know, we work with a number of Afghan warlords, particularly at the beginning of that conflict in 2003. And okay, it's not the right word, but it's, we sort of accepted the the gender-based discrimination probably a little bit more than, than we ought to have. That leads me as context for this question. When you were working with these local partners, did gender come up with them at all? Did they think maybe women should be involved in this at all? Did they seem to care? Were, were, there, were there hard gender divisions that you were encountering when you were working with these parties, or was it just... It was a complete absence of concern over women okay. in the process. It wasn't the active disengagement and persecution of women okay. that you would find in an Afghanistan-type environment with the Taliban's abhorrent record on women's rights and both during its its war engagement and during its reign. And what has always stunned me is in an, in an Afghanistan-type situation, the Taliban actually used women's rights as a talking point for themselves because they defined women's rights as the right to be free from persecution because they would just stay in their homes and they wouldn't try to join government. They wouldn't try to get educations. And so the Taliban actually did a better job of uh, claiming that they were protecting women than the government did. And they were able to 
you know, essentially say this is a Western concept, a you know non-Muslim concept that we're uh, we're having to deal with that is putting our women at risk. It was uh, incredibly cynical, but incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely, incredibly cynical. We typically ask of each of our guests, you know, do they think the decision or its outcome that we talk about was impacted by their gender, you know, if you're because they're women or not? If so, why? If not, why not? And so I guess the first time we're asking this of a man, do you feel that being a man influenced your your approach to this and, and peace accords and the exclusion of women from that? Or if not, why not? Absolutely, it did. You know, I've been, as I think you've heard, uh, an advocate for the leadership and empowerment of all marginalized groups in the global peace and security issue. But I've always reflected on the fact that I'm essentially an ally or partner or supporter. I am white. I am straight. I'm an older man. I come from an upper middle class environment. I do not have the lived experience of exclusion and prejudice faced on a daily basis by women, by people of color, by the LGBTQI plus community, ethnic minorities, displaced people, people in poverty, indigenous populations. You know, so I've always been a bit of an outsider in this effort. And similarly, I've been pressing all my life for disability rights, but it was only when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's a few years ago that one of my colleagues in that movement said to me, welcome to the community. Um, So that special role of partners and allies is something that you really have to focus on every day. And over the course of the last four years, I've had the opportunity to form an NGO called Mobilizing Men as Partners for Women, Peace, and Security, which is now supported by the Denver-based nonprofit Our Secure Future. Mm -hmm. And our basic goal is to mobilize men to serve in unique roles not leadership roles, but to promote the meaningful engagement of women in international security structures, recognizing that the gatekeepers of who gets into a peace negotiation or a peace operation or even a post-conflict reconstruction effort is usually a man, and it's usually a Western man, and it's usually not a man of color. And we came together, and there are 250 organizations and individuals, men and women, who are essentially carrying a common belief that women's leadership and engagement is essential to preventing and resolving deadly conflict, to building stable, just, and prosperous societies, into creating a peaceful global security order. You know, reflecting on my my own experiences, you know, in the national security world and allyship is is critical. There are things that there are doors that I have not been able to open myself 
and have been, I, you know, allies have been critical for that. And there are things that can be said by men and that, that, you know, if I say that, say X, Y, or Z, it's misinterpreted as, you know, I've got a grievance or I'm, I'm emotional or, you know, whatever it is, cause for dismissal. But it's when a man say it, Absolutely right. One of my favorite cartoons I saw recently was a uh, uh, boardroom, and the person directing the boardroom said, Miss Johnson, what a very good point you just make. Now, would one of the men make it so that we can take it seriously? (laughs) And and my goodness, that happens all the time. And you know, the same traits that are viewed by men as forceful and dynamic are represented in women by being pushy and being self-serving and only caring about one issue. I mean, this shows up all the time. And frankly, it even shows up within the, the meetings that we hold with the men mobilized for women, peace and security. And we just constantly have to remind ourselves that it's not about the men right. in this environment. It is about women's participation. It is about women's ownership. It's about women's leadership. And I can't tell you the number of times we have exploited the extraordinary power of the words, I misspoke, or I'm sorry, or I didn't mean to interrupt you. Two questions following up from this um, spring to mind. One, how does your organization respond to the popular allegation of wokeness? Now, it's just, this is just woke stuff. I've never understood woke as a negative concept. You know, to be aware of the fact that there are these discriminatory factors, to be aware of the fact that men do have access that women do not, to be aware of the fact that peace processes don't work if women aren't at the table, and that results in more deaths and more suffering. I've never understood how, you know, the failure to integrate women into the response to COVID for example, is something that is just trendy or fashionable. You know, I frequently speak about wokeness, but it's always from a positive standpoint. And this isn't a question of, you know, a trend or a phenomenon. I think we all increasingly have recognized, especially in the peace process arena, through eight separate you know, resolutions passed by the United Nations, for example, and remember passed in almost every case entirely by 15 men representing their countries, the recognition by NATO that women, peace and security is now one of the key priorities in their involvement. I think this is all to the good. And if there are people who basically believe that wokeness is a challenge, let them go back to sleep. Well put. I mean, it's me, it's, it's about effectiveness. You know, this, all of it, what gets put under the umbrella of woke is generally stuff that can foster respect 
cohesive teams and inclusive communities that lead to more effective outcomes on just about any particular issue or measure. Let me go to one other process that I've been involved with, which is the United Nations frequently brings me in to speak to force commanders, special representatives of the secretary general and uh, humanitarian coordinators for their peace missions abroad. And these are almost always men. Mm-hmm. And you go in and you start by using the argument that the peace agreement itself now frequently requires addressing gender-related issues. Mm-hmm. And their eyes go, go glazed. <laughs> you then say you have to do this because there are fundamental human rights at, at stake. We've all signed the Declaration of Human Rights. We all believe that women are equal. The eyes are still glazed. You then go to, hey, this could be your mother, your sister, your cousin, who's being raped, who's being excluded from processes. And then you start to see a little bit of a glimmer in the eyes. But where you really see the glimmer is you go in and you say, you know, your peace process is likely two-thirds more likely to fail over the next decade if you don't involve women. And you, for the rest of your career, will be associated with a peace process that has failed. You're not going to get another assignment, and it's going to impact the rest of your career. And then they listen. That's the bottom line. It is the bottom line. And uh, it's sad because the other factors that I mentioned are equally important. But the motivation is really self-interest. And if you just recognize that, you know, there are very few people. I mean, if you said something else was dominant, the lack of food or the lack of water or the lack of demobilization training was going to lead to the failure of your peace process, people would jump at it right away. It's Mm -hmm. taken them a long time to understand that the systematic exclusion of women itself is going to jeopardize the peace process. Well, to end our conversation, which is has been fascinating, I'd be really keen to hear, what advice do you have for men being allies and for future generations entering these spaces? You know, I think men entering the this arena have to show humility they have to recognize that again it's not about them it's about women who are affected by peace processes i think one of the advantages of today's communication is that we're all communicating by zoom and we should all you know men hit the mute button And you have to have a really good reason for demuting yourself or unmuting yourself. (laughs) I also think that men in this area have to advocate with other men. And they are, in, in fact, in a unique position to do so. That doesn't mean excluding women even from those conversations. 
But one of the things I've always worried about is that too frequently men back away from committing themselves to gender-related issues and even racial issues and even LGBTQI plus issues because they're so nervous about saying the wrong thing. And mm-hmm. in this environment, words do matter. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a tendency for men to assume that others know that they are woke in some way. And they make assumptions that lead them to make stupid statements. We, the first principle that we adopted in the, uh, the Men as Allies initiative was that our internal workings would ally with, listen to, and learn from each other under the watchwords, nothing about us without us. And so that leads to a welcome humility. It leads to fewer interruptions. And yet, the one thing that I've always been concerned about is that many men believe that their past engagement on women's empowerment and gender issues, you know, in some way punched a ticket Hmm. and gave them Mm -hmm. a special status or immunity. And so they saw their engagement in this mobilizing men initiative as a safe space where they no longer needed to gauge the impact of their language or check their biases at the door. And the truth is that that's not acceptable. You have to recognize that each new person that you're dealing with doesn't judge you on the basis of what you've done in the past. They judge you on the basis of who you are, what you say, what you do today. And the issues of sexism and misogyny, which are at the core of the challenge that we're facing, are so charged that they lead to easy misinterpretations, misunderstandings, distractions. And so focusing on language really matters. And as I said before, there is an extraordinary power in the words, I'm sorry, or I misspoke, or could you tell me what your feeling was when I said what I just said? Yeah. These are issues we'll never be able to take our hands off the wheel. I agree. Never take our hands off them. Well, Ambassador Steinberg, thank you so much for your time today, for your insights, and for your, your observations on how to be an effective ally. It's um, an incredibly important conversation. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I look forward to seeing more men on these programs. <laughs> Even though we are talking about smart women, smart power, there is a role for men. Absolutely. Thank Thank you. you so much. Thanks. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time.